Well, good morning. It is wonderful to see you all this morning. I'm so glad that you are here with us at Woodhaven Bible Church to sing and worship the Lord, uh, to see one another and encourage one another, even by your presence. Um, you encourage those around you. Uh, and we have the opportunity this morning to uh, sit under God's word for a few minutes. Um, just want to remind you as you prepare your heart to God's word, uh, something from Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And so this book that we are going to open this morning and study together is perfect, whole, and complete. It is God's full revelation to us, and this book revives the soul. It brings life to the deadness that is in our soul. It brings hope. The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices the heart. It brings joy. It enlightens the eyes. It brings light out of darkness. It gives clarity to us as we walk through this life. And so we have morning of opening this book and of studying God's word and hearing from God directly as we do this. So let me pray for us for just a moment here and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us and to enlighten our eyes and use his word. And then we'll get into John 3 together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together. We thank you for those who are gathered this morning. And we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would enlighten our eyes, and that you would bring your truth to bear on us today. Be with us now as we study. Strengthen our, our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, as someone who has moved to Michigan only recently, five years ago. That's fairly recently for your whole eyes. But as someone who has moved to Michigan only five years ago, one of the things that is different about living here, that is surprising to those who are, are from the outside and come in and live here, is the presence of very large factories around southeast Michigan. Um, I remember one of the first times driving up 75 before we even lived here and seeing the stamping plant here at the corner uh, right on West Road, right off 75, and thinking, I I've never seen anything like that before. It's huge. And that's probably not even one of the bigger plants that is here. Um, we just don't have factories of this size in central Virginia, where I am from. And so this week, as I was, I was thinking about this, I was very curious how many vehicles just Ford has made in these factories since Ford began in 1901. I think probably some of you could tell me that number down to the last vehicle this morning, but I had a little bit of trouble finding out how many vehicles, and we're not talking about GM, Chrysler, we're only talking about Ford, how many vehicles have been made not all of these are in Michigan, but by the company Ford since 1901. And the best that I could find is that in 2012, so 10 years ago, Ford crossed the 350 million vehicle mark. And so at the current pace, you know, probably sometime in the next few years, 400 million will be hit. Maybe it's already been hit. I don't know. Some of you probably know. Not all of those have been made here. Everyone knows the assembly line revolution 
things and started here. And it gave people the ability to create and to produce a whole lot of vehicles out of raw materials in a very short time. Now for me, when I, I'm fascinated by the whole process and the assembly line and all of that, I know some of you, that is just normal life for you, but it's still fascinating to me. And I have to tell you, when I, when I hear about and when I think about the assembly line and factories taking raw materials and producing vehicles from those raw materials, I always go back to this quote from John Calvin. Now that's not a Bible nerd thing to say. I don't know what is. But I always think back to this quote from John Calvin comparing the human heart to a factory. And here's what he says. He says, hence, we may infer, I think I have it on the screen here, that the human mind or heart is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, no, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it, here's what we do, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. Notice here that he says, the human mind dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. This is the heart of idolatry. And he says that our minds and our hearts, this is what we do. We make idols, just like an assembly line produces cars. We take the things around us and we make idols out of them. We want a God like us. We want a domesticated God, a God that we can control, because ultimately we create idols that will serve us. We create idols to get something that we want out of them. We, in our sinfulness, want to be the center of the universe and not God. That's the bottom line, and that's why we create idols that we then worship, but then we want something from those idols, something we think that we can control and we can dictate to those idols. And so this desire leads us to constantly turn created things, things God has made, into gods in order to get what we want out of them. And this, this mentality, this self-worshipping, self-centered posture is the heart of our sinfulness. This is what happened at the fall. Rather than looking outward in joy and praise to God, now our hearts are turned inward to self. And we love self. And so this posture causes us to constantly create idols, and then we imagine that those idols will make us happy, those idols that we have worshipped and created. And it's all a sham. It's all deception. It's all false. It's a dead-end street. Happiness, satisfaction, joy in this life is not found with self at the center. We're not made to live that way with everything being about me. We're made to live and find our joy and satisfaction with Christ at the center and with him being magnified, as we just sang, and with him being exalted as the focal point of our lives. And this, this transformation from self being at the center to Christ being at the center, this is one of the glorious realities that he has brought with his life death, and resurrection. Jesus came to save us from ourselves, to save us from our self-centeredness. 
He comes to rescue us from the inward turn and from our hearts being idol factories that produce idols that can't bring satisfaction. He came to save us from that and instead to turn our attention out to him where we find our true joy. But that requires, that transformation requires that we continually put him at the center, that he becomes the focal point of our lives. And in our text today, in John 3, if you're not there yet, go to John 3. We're going to start in verse 22. But in this text today, we're going to see John the Baptist demonstrate the proper response to Jesus and his ministry, right? Jesus comes on the scene, and John the Baptist has to respond to his ministry, and he does it in the right way. And he sets an example and a model for us of putting Jesus above everything else. Christ becomes the focal point, and John receives joy from that, from taking self out of the center and putting Christ at the center. And so in this passage, John 3, 22 to 36 today, we're going to see two fitting responses to the arrival of the bridegroom. There's a reason I call him the bridegroom. You'll see that here in a few minutes. But two fitting responses to the arrival of the bridegroom. And these are appropriate and fitting responses for you and I, as well as we see Christ's coming and ministry through the gospel of John. So the first one of these is found in verses 22 to 30, and it's the response of rejoicing at his coming and his glory. So we in here at WBC, the last couple of weeks, we've been in John chapter 3, and it's been a wonderful time studying the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Last week, we looked at uh, the last part of that, where the, the, the apostle John comments on what has just happened and gives us probably the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16. Uh, but we ended up in verse 21 last week with that conversation and then John's comments in verses 16 to 21. And now in the gospel, we get back to the narrative, the story here. Look at verse 22 of John 3. After this, so after Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover and after he had this conversation with Nicodemus, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, not very far away, just into the countryside there, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So after Passover, after his conversation with Nicodemus, he goes out into the countryside, not too far from Jerusalem, and he and his disciples begin baptizing out there, although later we find out it's just his disciples baptizing. And at the same time that they are out in the Judean wilderness, John the Baptist, who we've already met in this gospel, is also baptizing. Look at verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. And then a comment here, for John had not yet been put in prison. So if you read the gospel of Mark, it looks like in Mark that Jesus's ministry begins after John ends up in prison. But according to this gospel, John sort of fills in the gaps a little bit that are there in Mark, and there was a period of overlap between the baptizing ministry of John and the beginning stages of Jesus's ministry when his disciples are baptizing. And so they're both doing something very similar in the same way out in the wilderness. And that 
The fact that both of them are doing this at the same time leads to some discussion and some concern from John the Baptist's disciples. Look at verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, what's happening here? Well, this idea of purification is something that we were introduced to in John chapter 2 at the, the wedding at Cana. Remember this? Jesus turns the water into wine, and he does this in these clay pots that were set aside for purification, for the rites of purification. And so what these rituals or rites were, were the times where Jews would cleanse themselves in order to be acceptable, to be able to offer sacrifices, to enter into worship. They would wash their hands or they would wash their bodies. They would purify themselves outwardly in order to be able to offer sacrifices or to worship. They would rid their bodies of defilement. And so in all likelihood, what's happening here is Some Jewish person, probably a Pharisee or a leader, sees John baptizing, and obviously he's doing that in water. And so he comes and asks questions about the relationship between Jewish rites of purification, of cleansing, and John's baptism. Is this a baptism for cleansing, for to make people acceptable to God? And so it was some sort of discussion like that. Now, John's disciples are there, and they're obviously listening to this, and they come away from this conversation clearly thinking about John's ministry and the nature of John's ministry. What exactly is he doing here? And they come away thinking about the newly developing ministry of Jesus. And so they point out that at this time, Jesus is actually starting to baptize more people than John is which is a change. Jesus is taking on a more prominent role. Look at verse 26. They came to John, John's disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now this this seems likely that by this question, they're indicating they're a little bit frustrated with this. I mean, they are followers of John. They want their rabbi, their teacher, to have a very prominent role at the time. And so they're interested in seeing him baptize more and more people. And so they're a little bit frustrated by this. They don't seem to quite understand the relationship between John and between Jesus. They want his ministry, John's ministry, to be important. They don't want it to be fading away and and becoming less. And so so they ask. And in their asking, there is probably a touch of of self-centeredness here. There's a touch of a desire for prestige and for prominence that they display here. And their question leads us to John's response, and John's response is a beautiful example of humility and of a right perspective on the ministry of Jesus. It's a proper response to who Jesus is and to what he has come to do. And you can see that response begin in verse 27, where John recognizes and acknowledges that everything that he has done, every aspect of who he is, all the people that he's baptized, any success that he has had in ministry does not come from him. It has been gifted to him graciously. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. I mean, this this is a principle 
that we could all stand to print out and to place somewhere prominent so that we see it. And this is a principle that we could stand to write over everything that happens in our lives. And John's giving this as a general guideline here in a general way of perceiving the world. And it's absolutely true. Everything that John has has been given to him as a gracious gift from God. He's only baptizing. He's only preaching. The only reason anyone is even coming to him, the only reason he has disciples at all is because he has been given those things as a gift from God. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 4. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? John says this is a general principle that we can all take and apply, and now he's going to apply it to his specific situation relating to Jesus and his growing prominence. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John has been quite clear on this from the beginning. The point of his baptism, the goal of his preaching is to prepare the way for Jesus to come. So John knows where he fits in God's plans. He knows what his role is. And he knows where he fits because he knows it's about God and about his purposes and his plans, and it's not about John. It's not about his prominence. It's not about his ambition. It's about God's plans and God's purposes. Verse 29 shows us this. He clearly knows where he fits. Look at what he says here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. There's no doubt, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's no doubt that John understood the Old Testament and knew that in the Old Testament, who was the bride? It was Israel, God's people, and who was her husband? It was God. And so that relationship between God and his people was presented as a marriage relationship in the Old Testament. And here in John, we've already seen Jesus act as the bridegroom. He takes responsibility at the wedding at Cana to provide good wine for all who are present. And now John makes that identification explicit. He says that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the bridegroom. He's the one coming for his bride. He's come to rescue his bride and John knows that he is only the best man at the wedding. Look at what he says in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Think of John as the best man at the wedding. That's kind of how he views himself. And at a Jewish wedding, the best man was responsible to make sure that the wedding went well, that it was successful. He would give careful attention to that. He wasn't trying to be at the center of everything. He wasn't the focal point of the wedding. He knew that the bridegroom and the bride were the focal point, and his goal was to just make sure all attention was directed to them and everything went off without a hitch. He was entirely concerned with them. 
and not with self. And that's why here John responds with such joy. I love how he says this at the end of verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And that leads us to verse 30 and what John says here. The principle of verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. To increase means to grow in prominence, to have more and more attention given to you, to enjoy more honor and more respect. We could say to be glorified, to have attention drawn to you, to decrease, John's role, is to shrink in prominence. It's to matter less, to to recede into the background because all attention is given to someone else. And this principle that John says here, this is a principle for all of us, for all of life. Christ must increase. He must grow in prominence. Attention through our lives must be drawn to him. He must be the focal point. Everything in our lives must become more and more structured to draw attention to Jesus. And we recede more and more into the background as attention is drawn to him. He becomes the focal point. I stop pursuing my own status and my own recognition and my own prominence. And instead, everything is directed to him. Notice what happens when everything is directed to him. What happens in John's life when he decreases? He gets joy. His joy is complete. There's there's rejoicing. There's happiness at this. John's humble recognition of his place and his role in God's plan brings joy, real joy to him. It's not a fake joy. The proper and biblical response of denying self of losing my ambition, of losing my desire for prestige, of putting that to death, and of longing for Christ's glory through my life, that brings joy. That brings satisfaction. We often think it works the opposite way, don't we? That's how we're wired in our sinfulness. The more attention I can get, The more prominence I can get, the more satisfaction and joy I will have. To live a happy life, to find real satisfaction, I must get my own way. Things must go according to my plan. The chips need to fall in my favor for me to be happy. I have to be the center of attention, I have to be prominent. But that's not how it actually works. That is sin deceiving us. Instead, we find less satisfaction when we pursue our own prominence and prestige. This is why the gospel is such good news, because this is how things were meant to be. The path of repentance, of turning from self, seeing my sin, repenting of sin, denying self. This is the path to true life, and this is so counterintuitive for us in our sinfulness. But this is the road to genuine and lasting joy. 
And it seems like to us in our sinfulness that if we fall into the background, if Christ becomes the center and we recede and we no longer pursue self and my own satisfaction and my own joy, it seems as if I will lose who I am. Well, what are you saying? I just don't ever do anything I want? That I, I lose all desire for anything? And that I'm constantly just being run over by everyone else because I'm serving Christ in that? How is that going to bring satisfaction and joy? And when you give of yourself, you don't lose what you want. Your wants change. And you become who you were originally intended to be. One author put it like this. I love this. Do we then lose ourselves to succeed in identifying our will with God's will is not, as is often mistakenly said, to have no will of our own. Far from it. To have no will is impossible. It would be to not even be a person. Rather, it is for the first time to have a will that is fully functional, not at war with itself, and capable of directing all the parts of the self in harmony with one another under the direction of God. Now we do not hesitate to do what is right. And to do wrong, we would have to work against ourselves. Because Christ is above all, and he is the centerpiece, and he is my joy and my satisfaction. And so as he becomes that, my will is aligned with God's will, and I find who I truly am as I serve him and bring glory to him. That is the proper response to Christ and to his coming. We submit to God's lordship and to the exaltation of Christ And we do that precisely because of this next point, because of this next response, because of who he is, because we recognize his authority. This is in verses 31 to 36. So I told you last time, as we moved from verse 15 to verse 16 in John 3, we were going from the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus to sort of a, an editorial comment in verses 16 to 21. John the Apostle wrote 16 to 21. I think the same thing is happening here. So I don't think John the Baptist is talking anymore, beginning in verse 31. I think right here we're dealing with John the Apostle. So he begins to offer commentary on this whole chapter. And he brings the whole discussion of the new birth and the change that happens, the possibility of eternal life, Christ's exaltation. He brings all of that to a conclusion here by pointing us to Jesus's authority. This is another fitting response to Jesus's arrival. It flows naturally from the first. So if John the Baptist exemplifies a humble joy before Jesus, this section, John the Apostle's comments here, tell us why Jesus must increase. It's not some random reason for why you must decrease and he must increase and he must receive prominence and glory and be the center and the focal point. He must and should receive those things because he has all authority and supremacy. Because he is who he is. And John is going to go at that principle of Jesus having all authority in many different ways in this passage. 
Start in verse 31. Look there with me. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And John is making explicit what we've seen in this gospel so far. Beginning in John 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. God has come down in the incarnation, and He is here. And since He has come down from heaven, He is unique, there is no one like Him, and He has the supremacy and the authority unlike anyone else. He's not simply another good teacher. He's not a charismatic guy who you want to be the center of attention because he's so influential, such a capable speaker and a prominent leader. He's not just some special human being or a really nice guy. He's exalted in status and authority, and so when he speaks, we must listen. Listen well. And as we listen, then we bow to his authority. Look at verses 32 to 34. He bears witness, right? He's above all, and he's come down to earth, and now what does he do? He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet, no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We'll get back to those verses in a minute. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without Measure. Notice verse 34 in particular. Jesus speaks the very words of God. And as he does this, he does it because he has the Spirit without measure. Think about that for a moment. His words are empowered by the Holy Spirit because he has the Spirit without measure. Think back to the Old Testament. If you're familiar with your Bible, in the Old Testament, you do find the Spirit empowering certain people, don't you? But it's only for a brief time, and it's for a specific task. The Spirit would come on Elijah, and he would perform miracles. Or the Spirit would come on David for a brief amount of time, and he would serve the Lord in a, in a mighty way. But it was never permanent, and it was only for certain tasks. They're empowered, these men were empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish His will. The prophets wrote as they were moved by the Spirit. But the Spirit's work in those people was temporary. It was momentary, it was limited. But what does John say about Jesus here? He has the Spirit without measure. He speaks and acts with God's authority because the Spirit is empowering Him and is upon Him. And this is true. The Spirit is empowered in because of verse 35. Look there. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So think about the picture that we are getting of Jesus in these verses. He's from above. He's above all. He speaks God's word and speaks it with authority. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. God has empowered him and given him the Spirit without measure, and now his words and his, his actions are empowered by the work of the Spirit, and they accurately reflect God's will and desires. He's no mere human servant who's been given a special task for a brief time. 
He is the beloved son of God who has always existed in a perfect loving relationship with the father and the father has now put all authority in him and all things into his hands. And that reality calls for recognition from us. We have to respond by seeing him for who he is. And the proper response to that authority is one of belief. Go back to verses 32 and 33. I told you we would go back here. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet there are some. No one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Once again in the Gospel of John, John is beating this drum again of describing the division that we see in humanity. There are two different groups of people here. And they are set apart and divided based on how they respond to Jesus' words and his authority. Many will love darkness. We saw this in verse 19. They, their hearts will love darkness and be drawn to darkness. And they will not receive Christ's testimony. They will reject his words. But according to verse 33, there will be some who will recognize his authority and they will believe in him. They will accept the truthfulness of his words. They'll see his actions. They'll see his authority, see him for who he is. And as that happens, it's like they're setting their family seal to a document and certifying it and in recognition of the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And to believe in Jesus and his words is to believe in God. It's to trust in him. And that, all of that and that division and that response to him is why verse 36 is true. And this is how John brings the whole chapter to a close. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, who does not come under his authority, who does not recognize him for who he is, who does not listen to his words and respond in repentance and faith and submission to him and his authority, whoever does not have him as the focal point of his or her life, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To believe in the Son is to enter into eternal life. It is to even now have a new quality of life. It's to experience the new birth and have a transformation of your heart, to have new desires put inside of you and to have the Spirit working and developing Christ's likeness in you. To reject the words and the authority of the Son is to reject the Creator God, the one who made everything, the one who is sustaining your heartbeat at this very moment. To reject Jesus Christ as he is given in the Gospels is to reject God. And to reject God, to reject the Son, is to remain under his wrath. God loves the world. We saw that in John 3.16. He loves what he has created. But his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice will not allow his words and the authority of his Son and the offer of his Son to humanity to be rejected. And he will not allow rebellious, sinful, self-centered human beings to continue on in their sin without consequence. 
Instead, they will remain under his wrath. And what is his wrath? Not a, not a popular or a fun word to describe God, but what is it? Wrath is God's consistent and unyielding resistance to sin and evil. God's wrath is the response of his holiness and his righteousness to sin. He has to respond this way. It's also, believe it or not, an outworking of his love. Because he truly loves his son and his own glory and his holiness, and because he loves his people, God responds in wrath to sin because he is a God of love. What he has made and what he loves is threatened by sin. And so God's love leads him to act in wrath against sin. And his action against sin and those who persist in it is consistent and it is unyielding. It does not relent because his holiness does not abate one bit. And so here's the message of this passage. Respond to the authority of Jesus with faith in his words. Submission. Read what he says. Read the offer of salvation. Read the descriptions of who he is and accept it. Take it for what it is. Take it as true, as an accurate reflection of reality. This is the way things are. Jesus is the focal point. He's the centerpiece. Trust in his words. Recognize his authority. And when you recognize his authority and trust in his words, then as your heart is made new, as you receive the new birth and new desires and the spirit is at work inside of you, then you long for him to be exalted. You respond to him. If you're a Christian today, you respond to this by identifying with what John the Baptist says here. I've received everything as a gift. Even my faith is a gift from God. And so it brings me nothing but joy to see Christ put on display and to see him exalted. And so I intentionally order my life in such a way, the structure of my life, my walk, my day-to-day patterns, my thoughts, my obedience, everything about my life is ordered in a way so that Christ increases and so that I decrease. And in that, we find joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our desire is that you would be exalted, that you would increase in prominence, in glory, and that you would increase in our community. First of all, in our lives, those of us who are here, who are followers of Christ, we pray that you would become the focal point more and more that you would grow in prominence and that our lives would, would properly reflect that. And then our prayer is that we would go out and leave here today on mission for you and proclaim the glory of the gospel and build relationships with people and seek to bring others to identify your authority and your grace and your goodness and to respond in repentance and faith to you. We long to see those around us in our community delivered from your wrath because of your love. And so we thank you for this passage. We thank you for who you are. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.